In the name of the Father, the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Can 15 beautiful lines from literally one page of the Bible really make that much difference in your life? I would suggest to you that they can if you open your heart to their magic, and that is precisely what I'm going to invite you to do for the next four weeks. For the next 28 days, I invite you to meditate on what I would guess is the passage of Scripture that is most known by heart by more people than any other. I mean, we know all kinds of stories. We know the creation story about Adam and Eve. We, we know about Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. We know the feeding of the 5,000. We know the Christmas story. But likely this is the one more of us know by heart than any other. Even if you can't recite it perfectly, you can probably say it along with the congregation, kind of like the way you sing the Star Spangled Banner at a ball game. We are so familiar with it that even when a new translation comes along, one that even might be a better interpretation of the original Hebrew, we want absolutely nothing to do with that. Why? Why do we love this psalm more than the 149 others? Why do we turn to this psalm in a time of distress when they're wheeling our gurney down the hall to surgery? Why do we read this psalm more than any other at a funeral or when we gather at the graveside? I mean, it's beautiful poetry, but be honest, there's a lot of beautiful poetry in the Bible. For my money, it is because this psalm offers to us a way of seeing the world that makes it less frightening, teaching us how to deal with the loss of those that we love or to deal with conflicts with people who we don't like. It shows us how to recognize God even in places that we would never think to look for God or when our Minds are preoccupied with all kinds of things. It shows us how we might look for God's presence. Science, Albert Einstein once said, science can tell us a lot about the universe, how old it is, how vast. What are the laws of physics that control it? But he went on to say, science is powerless to answer the most important question of all. Is this universe a friendly place or not? Is it supportive of human life, of our hopes and aspirations? And you see, the 23rd Psalm, with its image of the Lord as our shepherd, um, is focused on that concern. It teaches us to look at the word very, world very clearly. There are no illusions here. But to also be able to look at the world confidently and even courageously. This may not be a perfect world, it says, but it is God's world. It may well be a frightening place, as we've been talking about this fall, but it becomes less frightening when we are aware that God is with us in it. 
Or as one writer put it, sometimes God calms the storm, but sometimes God allows the storm to rage and calms the frightened child. Our earliest ancestors, the Hebrews, who gave us the Bible, you will remember were at first nomads. They owned no property. They simply wandered with their flocks and their herds to any place that they could find green pastures. Generations later, some of those descendants became farmers, and so they, they engaged in this um, cooperative work between the hard work of the farmer and the grace of the one who sends the rain and the sun to help the crops. Later still, they became artisans. They became merchants. But they never forgot their origins, always remembering stories of, of Abraham and then Moses and then David, each of whom took their turns tending their sheep. They retained this image of the shepherd guarding his flock, loving each individual lamb. And in their poetry, they pictured God as a shepherd. You know, psychologists tell us that young children have what they call a morality of security. In other words, good is anything that makes them feel safe. Bad is anything that makes them feel anxious. So when we're young, our parents sort of play that role, right? I mean, our parents help us to feel secure. That's why we hide behind their legs or cling to their coattails. Um, we may resent some of the pleasures that they deny us, the restrictions that they place on us. Don't play in the street. No snacks before dinner. But at some level, we instinctively know that they are doing that out of love for our own good, as they so often remind us. Kids who are constantly testing the limits of their parents' rules are more than happy to win some of those arguments, but would likely panic if their parents never said no to them, like a person who feels the wall move when he leans against it. We grow up uh, and we get a little older, we discover that much to our chagrin, our parents can't always keep us safe. Favorite toys break and they can't be mended. We fall down and we hurt ourselves. And our parents replace this promise of safety with the reassurance of their caring and their love. They dry our tears, they get us medicine, they make us chicken soup. We grow into adolescence, and nature seems to compel us to assert our independence. But we never outgrow that yearning for someone who will make us feel safe and cared for in what is undoubtedly a crowded and often very impersonal world. The Lord is my shepherd, the one who watches over me, the one who leads me and who knows my name. One of the greatest artistic creations ever fashioned by human hands is Michelangelo's Pietà in the Vatican, uh, created in 1498 when Michelangelo was all of 23 years old. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
holding the broken body of her son on her lap, looking at him with this unbelievable tenderness and sorrow. The look on Mary's face, her longing to take some of her son's pain onto her, speaks to anyone who has ever loved another person. There is no question of its status as an artistic masterpiece. There's only one problem. The scene likely portrays an event that never happened. If you reread the accounts of the crucifixion, you will discover that only in the Gospel of John is Mary even present at the cross, and even then, she is sent away before he dies. In the other three versions, Mary is not a witness at the cross. So how can Michelangelo's Pietà move us so deeply? How can it strike us as so right and so true if it portrays an event that may never have taken place? Well, let me suggest that the woman in the sculpture holding the broken body of Jesus, looking at it so tenderly, is perhaps not Mary at all but God, God in her feminine aspect. Not the all-powerful God who created and rules the world, but rather the God who gave birth to life in all of its fragile vulnerability, the way every mother creates life. A God who grieves for her children whenever they suffer, who suffers with them whenever they are cruel or inflict harm on each other. Every mother, every parent who has suffered the loss of a child is, in a sense, reenacting God's grief at the death of any of her children. I'm remembering uh, William Sloan Coffin, who was the pastor at uh, Riverside in New York for so many years. After the death of his son in a terrible car accident, reaffirming his faith. God's was the first heart to break, he said. And that is the response of God to any and all who would ask, if the Lord is our shepherd, why do innocent people suffer and die like the 11 people who were murdered in a synagogue just this weekend? But God does not promise always happy endings in a world in which the laws of nature and human cruelty are on display daily. God's promise is not that you and I will always be safe, but that we will never be alone. And that is what the psalmist would teach us to see. The Lord is my shepherd. Of course, the psalm doesn't end there. It only begins there. And so he goes on to say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I want you to think with me for a moment about how powerful wanting is in our society. I read just this month that consumer um, spending now accounts for 70% of our GDP, our gross domestic product which is more than any industrial nation in history. Most European nations, it's about 50%. In our parents' generation, 
it was about 60%, which means that more than ever before, our economy is powered by our collective nights out for dinner, our spending on Halloween and at Christmas, and those Amazon packages that get delivered to our door just about every day. Bombarded 24-7 by advertising that seeks always to make us aware of what we don't have, we live with a pervasive sense of scarcity. We are consumed, pun intended, by what we lack rather than what we have. And in that sense, the psalmist words are undeniably countercultural, inviting us to a different kind of mindset. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So does that, does that mean that if only I believe in God, uh, God will give me everything that I want? No. That was the TV evangelist that you listened to before you came here this morning. Is he suggesting that if only I have enough faith, God will extinguish my wanting and desires? No, though there are religions who teach renunciation as the key to happiness. Buddhism, for example, says desire nothing and you will never miss anything that you don't have. Love no one and no one will have the power to hurt you by leaving you. I don't think that's what the psalmist is saying. The problem may actually be one of translation in this case. The, look, the reality is that the nearly 500-year-old King James translation of the Bible sometimes uses words that mean something different today than they did in the 16th century. So the intent of the original Hebrew is more accurately um, produced in some modern translations, not as I shall not want, but rather I shall Lack for nothing. That is, God will provide what I need. Or as one translation puts it, the Lord is my shepherd, what more do I need? To want, in the old Elizabethan English, means not to desire, but to lack, to be without something. Like when we say, to be found wanting. Or poetically, we say, for want of a nail, which is something I never say. But the promise of the Good Shepherd is not that you and I will get everything that we want, but the food and the water and the safe space that we need. So one of the major goals of religion, it seems to me, is to help people focus gratefully on what we have instead of being consumed by what we don't have. Thank you for seems to me a more authentically spiritual prayer than please gimme. A preacher writes about going to visit a member of his congregation uh, who was suffering from a brain infection which made it uh, difficult, impossible for him to walk. He had lost sight in his left eye. He spent all of his days in his bed in an 8-by-10-foot bedroom in his house. While visiting, the man mentioned something that he had just read. What if God only gave us today what we thanked God for yesterday? 
Makes me think of Peter Schaffer's wonderful play, later an Academy Award-winning movie, Amadeus. You remember the life of Mozart, and you remember his contemporaries could never be, enjoy their own success. They could never take pleasure in their own significant talents. Why? Because Mozart had more. And yet at the same time this week, I found myself sort of wondering whether wanting is always a bad thing. I mean, if more is just about wanting more wealth or more power, the newest car, the fastest computer, then yes, we could pray for the peace that comes from not coveting. But what if more, if the more that we long for is more wisdom, or more generosity, or more courage, then it seems to me that wanting, or desiring, or aspiring would be a good thing, right? So maybe the challenge of the psalmist is not so much to want nothing, but rather to want more of the right things. Elsewhere, in one of the lesser-known psalms, the psalmist writes, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The late Carl R. Marnie used to translate that verse, Take delight in the Lord, and he'll fix your wanter. So my version of the shepherd's psalm would begin this way. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall often want. I shall yearn, I shall aspire. I shall continue to miss the people and the abilities that are taken from my life. As loved ones die, as my physical skills diminish, I shall probe those empty spaces in my life like a tongue probing a missing tooth. but I will never feel deprived or diminished if I don't get everything that I want because I know how blessed I am by what I already have. Amen.